Welcome to the 47th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. On this podcast, we discuss the post-punk and new wave eras of the late 70s and early 80s. To promote the upcoming birthday party documentary, Mutiny in Heaven, we've secured an interview with one of the founding members. So I'll leave it up to Mark, who's champing at the bat, to introduce today's interviewee. On our birthday party episode, I said something like, there's never been an Australian band before or since quite like them, and I stand by that. We recently had the opportunity to interview drummer Phil Calvert, who told us about the boys' early school days, his departure from the band, and why he knew eventually Nick would go solo. Ladies and gentlemen, release the bats. Well, hi, Phil. Um, my name's Mark. To my right is Patrick. Howdy. Um, Graham is off camera uh, producing this particular episode. We're from Known Pleasures. We are really, really grateful to have you on and thank you so much for your time. We recently saw the movie, all three of us, and um, obviously we're big fans and we enjoyed it. We saw it, we saw it uh, Graham and I, over in the Cremorne at the um, at the Sydney premiere. Oh, were you there that night with the Q&A? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. I felt like you could have got a bit more in there. <laughs> That was one of the better um, Q&A sessions. It was um, quite lively and uh, such a beautiful old um, cinema too. It's great to see, you know, people going to the movies in a big room with a big screen and, and mm. it, it, it gives you much more of a feel. I could have um, I could have handled the sound. I, most of the screenings I've been at, well, I might be getting old and deaf, but <laughs> I reckon they could have pumped the sound a little more. I thought the same. In the room, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, it needed to be louder. That was my only complaint about it. But you must have been pleased with the amount of people there. I turned up thinking maybe there's 40 or 50 people, and I got there and it was like, wow, we had trouble getting a seat. It's fantastic. It was good. Um, and I think that um, I think that added to the sense of occasion. In mm. Melbourne, it had already been um, at the Melbourne International Film Festival yeah. launch, and so people who were dead keen had gone to see it there. And then there'd also been a, uh, an affiliated with MIF screening at the Forum Theatre, which is like a live music venue, like quite a big room. Yeah, yeah, it's massive. So um, I thought, uh, but Sydney hadn't had a chance to see it. So a lot. Uh, I was away for the MIF thing. I was overseas and for the Forum thing, so I wasn't around for those Q and As. And um, then uh, when it got to the ones where I was around, um, uh, it was smaller. I mean, like the Nova, I mean, it's probably a couple of hundred in there or something like that. It was great. But, um, you know, the Dead Keen fans had already kind of in Melbourne, where there are a few, yes. uh, were, <laughs> were quite, had, had seen it, right? Uh, but in Sydney, uh, that one you went to at Cremorne, that was the first time that anyone had a chance to see it. And I, I had quite a few people on the free list, I think, that, might have helped as well, like the um, <laughs> a few hundreds. The production company had uh, most of the people involved with the uh, you know the back of the house editing and things like that were in there as well. So uh, I think that that uh, put a few bums on seats uh, uh, as well. But it was it was great vibe in the room and like yeah, mm. Tracy's old girlfriend Caitlin was there with uh, oh, her current okay. partner and stuff, and so like that really added to the whole like sense of uh, occasion of the evening. Yeah. Are you happy with it? I mean, that was my first question I wanted to ask you about it, obviously. Oh, look, yeah, I'm really happy with it. I think that Ian's done an amazing job because, like, you've got to oh, – it's like making a record. It's like writing a book. It's like you can only put so much in. Uh, you've got an hour and 40. Uh, you've got to cover, um, you know, kind of a five- or six-year period. What do you leave in and what do you leave out? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that he's done a – a great job of crafting the film and i think that one of the great indicators of that for me is that people that are now friends of mine that i know uh, that don't know anything about the band or anything about <laughs> my past uh have gone and seen the movie and just as a piece of cinema have really enjoyed it so they've got the story they've got the vibe they weren't there at the time but they go hey this you know it really works I didn't fall asleep. I didn't go, this is boring. I didn't go, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They just got it. So I think in that way, it's really, really successful. Uh, I'm very, um, I'm really happy that it's being um, 
uh, framed as a thing about a band that's five individual members mm, mm. rather than it being about this is what Nick Cave used to do before he got to be Nick Cave kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think that's really successful. I think they put great um, effort into trying to give a sense of Tracy, which I think was mm. really difficult uh, in the fact that, of course, that he died when he was 28 and that mm. he um, there's very little footage of any of him. And I think that that was great where they used the animation as a device. Yeah. Um, to try and fill some of those gaps. And the other one too is that um, there was in, in earlier pre-production and like I've been involved since the get-go with this whole thing, um, there was talk about, oh, we'll use kind of like VR, you know, virtual reality, or they'll use some kind of other, you know, thing to try and like emulate these people. And I'm going, that sounds really fucking scary like the concept that you're going to try and have these avatars and things like that <laughs> so the animation uh was a really nice device to kind of like like make that have a a feeling of being a thing so yeah that was um i said th i thought that worked well um look you know is it perfect what is nothing is you know and i think uh it just gives a good sense of the time and a good sense of kind of like the dynamic between the people and and yep. the focus that was really really strongly on the music you've seen the film a few times now i guess or a few hundred times and how how are you i mean uh i don't sometimes i turn up for the beginning and the end i've seen right, okay. it all the way through i think three times but i have seen it uh, many iterations prior yeah. during the edit editing process and even when I saw it for the first time in the cinema there were some uh, uh, additions and cuts that weren't even in the last cut that I saw so uh, okay. uh, yeah it's yeah it's, sorry I cut you off yeah no uh, uh, in writing like people writing books they talk about killing your darlings as in you know like the fantastic line in a paragraph that you've got to cut out because it doesn't quite work in the, the kind of fuller context of it. Is there something that was left out of the final cut that you think, oh, oh man, I, I wish think, that was I in think, there? I think it was alluded to in the um, in the Q and A that you guys saw at Cremorne that that the um, the the um, the ability to uh, include uh, you know a lot of the girls and the girlfriends and the people mm. that were around the band. Um, was difficult, and then I think that was made even more difficult by the fact that Anita passed away during pre-production, right, and yeah. she was also someone who wasn't particularly keen on uh, doing any kind of press or things like that anyway. So it might have been difficult to really get her on board with that. Um, so I think uh, the other thing too, which I think may or also have come out is that it spins a very very good tale about how desperate things were in the first year or so in london which they were but they were more desperate for some people than others and i think people who uh, are more resilient and cope well under stress uh, people like may i say people like myself or mick harvey um we didn't actually you know be rolling in the gutters starving in london in the first year we got jobs we held our shit together we got but I mean, that doesn't make a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, and in, in fact, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all, you know, freaking beer and skills. We were, we were struggling, don't, yeah, don't get yeah. me wrong. Uh, but I quite enjoyed being in London. You know, where, you know, you'll often hear Roland or, you know, uh, quoted in and out of context and in this film and other places, you know, bemoaning how, you know, misery ridden he was in the first couple of years in London. But he got yeah, to yeah. like it later you know, kind of thing. But it was like I, I never really felt that once I got to London and I got settled and I found my feet. And, yes, we were working on the band. But, uh, you know, I made other friends and associates and, uh, uh, and you know, eventually forged, you know, quite a, a, you know, a good kind of life in London, which is uh, why, as you would have observed uh, in the movie, I said, oh, no, I'm fine. I'll just stay here and maintain yeah, my base yeah, in yeah. England. I'll just travel back and forth to Berlin. Mm. <laughs> Obviously, I was missing some context. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. 
Certainly in terms of that that year in London, the way you're describing it is much less dramatic than, you know, having a band member suffering from severe malnutrition for a start. Or for instance, I think it might You've have been choices. You've got choices. You <laughs> yes. can spend your money on food or you can spend your money on some other stuff, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either either will uh, alleviate hunger, but that's another, <laughs> another thing altogether. Yeah, yeah. Did Nick say that Roland's attitude to London was that it had been designed specifically to taunt him or some, something along those lines? I mean, that is uh, – look, I mean – I'm not going to pile on on Rolly, you know. No, I'm not no, gonna, no, I not mean, at all. it's like you know. I mean, people's coping mechanisms are different. Uh, it was a tough time, um, uh, and it it was just um, something where I don't I don't think he was necessarily had the the armor um, mm. to to deal with it. I mean, it's it's really yeah. Look, let's let's get this in perspective. We were we were a bunch of guys. We're twenty one years old, you know, right? We'd been going, you know, since seventy seven, seventy eight, or something like that. We'd been, you know, operating in Australia in a really vibrant music scene. Where okay, we were, you know, not part of the mainstream, but we were gigging and we had a a kind of like support mechanism around it for, of, of, you know, fans, other musicians, people who were trying to, you know, chasing similar artistic pursuits, right? So that was all great vibes in Melbourne and it's warm in summer and it ain't that cold in winter yeah, and yeah. you can get by and you can go get dinner at mum's house if you're starving, <laughs> even if you are living in a flat in St Kilda, right? You, Dump, you know, take those 21-year-old boys, stick them all on a plane, and now you're on the other side of the planet with little or no support, uh, and and you're trying the best you can to make your music happen for the world or, or for you. Actually, you're just trying to make the music. That's what kind of like that's what's going on. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, it, it would be pretty, you know, uh, it, it's pretty easy to draw the line where you go, this is an absolute hellhole and it's so... Mm-hmm. You know, it's really pressing down on me personally, and like you know, um, like and at every turn, I mean, look, you got no idea how weird London was back then. You try and open a bank account, you can't just walk into you know the CBA and go, oh, "Here's my driver's license. Can I open a savings account?" No, man. It's like, oh, have you got a job? Like, oh, who's going to vouch for you? It's just a bank account. <laughs> no, you can't do that. You know, it's like it's. So every at every twist there was stuff, and mm. um, and it was it, it was complicated, and that's some of the things that um maybe is for you know volume two of the Mark Mordu book or something like that. You can't get that into a film, and if I drilled down into every question you have about the movie, for every answer I give you, you'd add an hour to that film. Yeah, so yeah. maybe we get back to the film. <laughs> Well, well, can I just ask you, you February 1980, you're about to morph from the boys next door to the birthday party, the great exodus to London. Everybody had to go to London. That was what everybody did back then. What made you guys think that you were going to make a success of it when so many before you and after have failed? I mean, really, it's, you know, it's a big call. It is. I I don't like to draw on the kind of like concept of best and better or anything like that. I just, we... I don't know, we had some kind of belief structure that um, what we were doing would fit, or actually what we were doing would actually be better um, than what we were hearing. And while we were influenced by it, there's no doubt uh, that we thought that if we could take our brand of what we were doing there, that it would at least get up and fly, Um, which actually, you know, we were kind of right. So that was, and I think it was incredible self-belief uh, more than anything else. And um, and I think maybe arriving in London uh, initially might have put a bit of a dent in that self-belief. Um, I remember the very, I think the second night we were in London, uh, it's, it's spoken about in the movie that we went to a, uh, a gig a few weeks in at the Lyceum where there was a bunch of bands playing. But the second night, uh, a, uh, a another Melbourne expat, a girl called uh, Vicky Bonnet, uh, said, oh, I can get you in to see The Cure at the Marquee. So we went to see The Cure at the Marquee in Wardour Street. And this was like the three imaginary boys kind mm, of yeah, era yeah, yeah. Three, uh, cure. Three the pieces, best cure. You know. <laughs> Super tight. Huh? Really good just like the record. And I'm standing in the audience going, if every band in England can actually play as good as this, we're really up against it. 
But fortunately, they couldn't. Uh, and we had hundreds and hundreds of gigs behind us. So once we did start to play, we are actually quite a well-oiled type machine and could play well together. But, um, yeah, and then, you know, subsequently, a couple of weeks later, we went to a gig at the Lyceum and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, teardrop explosion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing um, early on um, Susie and the Banshees at the Music Machine, and they were just not appalling, just not just not a well-honed live act. They could make great records. They looked good. It was all, you know, the sound was coming on stage. I was going, you know, what went on in between songs, whatever. It was just, you know, slightly shambolic. And, you know, this is okay in London. Mm. This is okay, you know. <laughs> so I think we just believed. We we, we, we thought we had a thing uh, and we thought we thought we would stand apart. With your time in um, England, in London that year when you only played like 10 or 11 gigs, were you constantly sending your tape around, you know, to the various places and they were saying this this sucks or what was the... That's the thing that I I suppose, yeah, that's the, as a personal aside, the thing I think is kind of like would, would have been a nice little sort of chit-chat in the movie was, that, okay, what happened was that every... Uh, once I had a job and we were settled and we like we were living in our shitty house and all that kind of stuff, and we uh, had some records that we had made in Australia, uh, and mm. we were trying to get those to John Peel. And then we did the thing where we self-released um, uh, Mr. Clarinet. So it was financed by Missing Link, the, the manufacturer of it, but they were pressed in London, and then X amount of them we shipped um, back to Australia um, uh Keith, who owned Missing Link and was our manager, uh, used to regularly buy records from Rough Trade, who were also a wholesaler as well as a record label and also a retail record shop. And so we took a bunch of them down to Rough Trade. They shipped those back to Australia, to Keith. They kept a bunch of themselves for them to distribute, and so it was like they were selling it as an indie single that was put out by a band, (laughs) which they did heaps of then. And so we went... um, Every Monday evening, I would go to Portland Place, uh, which is where the BBC offices were, and I'd wait outside, foolishly at the front door, hoping to snag John Peel on his <laughs> right. way to do his radio show. And so I turned up week after week after week, and then eventually the guy who was the uh, the security guard, so like um, it's like a job at the, um, they have names for like a warden or something at the uh, BBC. It's this guy in a uniform, like looks like a cop, but isn't, has BBC logos on him and stuff like that, said, oh, look, you keep turning up. This is kind of a bit fucking sad. You know? <laughs> um, he goes, um, uh, he's just coming through the front door. But he goes, um, See that guy there? That's John Waters. He's his producer. Wow. And I said, oh, oh you know, like, you know, <laughs> he said, no, he said, the security guy said, give me the, the records and I'll give them to John Waters with, you know, like to say. And so basically after, a, you know, a, a month or so of doing this, they, they and then Peel played, you know, Mr. Clarinet on BBC One. Yeah. Wow. And so that's the kind of thing like where you go, oh, well, you know, if I didn't stand there every Monday night, maybe – they wouldn't have taken pity on me and they wouldn't have got made sure that the producer yeah, got yeah. the record and it wouldn't have got the peel. But maybe it would have eventually through rough trade yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, I like to think that, uh, you know, a bit of uh, uh, perseverance paid off there <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then that was that was really for me, uh, and I think for the band, the um, the biggest coup of that whole four year, besides the seven gigs that we played, yeah. uh, was that Peel picked up on us, played that record, um, put us in the studio to do one of his uh, BBC recording sessions, which gave us four songs, which became demos for the Press on Fire record. Um, that also, the fact that that happened meant that, you know, uh, or, you know, through another set of associations that uh, Ivo at uh, 4AD picked up, uh, put out the Friend Catcher single. And, you know, by the time we left England to come back to Australia, I think it was, you know, number four or something on the NME chart. So we're going, bang, we're off, you know. So it was, um, yeah, hang on, we got off the track. What was the question? No, yeah, no, that, yeah. that was pretty yeah, much yeah, it. Yeah, 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 no, no, that was on track. That was on track. It's been an interesting and a kind of joyous experience, this whole thing, like the whole movie thing and the whole revisiting that time, uh, especially the the things around Tracy and Roland 
But uh, even the reconnection, the time I've had to spend with Mick, mm. Mick, yeah. Yeah, 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 because we've been involved in all these Q and A things, and then yeah, we were up in Sydney. I said, "You want to yeah breakfast tomorrow?" And then we sat around for uh, two hours or more having breakfast and coffee and stuff. And that because, as oft mentioned uh, in the movie, you know, we never had a band meeting. We really discussed stuff. We just things just happened, and we did mm-hmm. stuff right. And um, so everything that happened after I left the band. I've never had a chance to ask anybody about. So I was able wow. to talk to Mick about the whole move to Berlin, uh, the whole how that went, where they lived, you know, how the other gigs panned out after that, how they transitioned from doing the songs that I played that probably no one else could really play yeah. to, you know, moving those out of the set or into the set or which ones Mick chose to do and how that all worked. And then the great revelation to myself that Roland never actually moved to Berlin. So the bit where he's bitching (laughs) about Berlin, um, uh, about, you know, it's terrible I'm living in people, is because he actually, he and Genevieve maintained their base in London, which is what what you wanted to do. (laughs) And, uh, uh, but then, uh, you know, so Roland was only ever there when they were gigging or recording and stuff and then would go back to London. Uh, And I think that might have, added to the tension that was the kind of, and I think the movie does sort of like tread that path of, of going, it was kind of an inevitable disintegration. Mm. Like, so, you know, okay, I went first and then, you know, then the next guy off the next cab off mm. the rank was Rolly and stuff like that. Yeah. And I have uh, recently, I think it was, it was, I know it was in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think it was for The Age or The Guardian. I did an interview where, Basically, um, somebody asked me about that and I said, you know, ever since probably I was in high school, I kind of always knew it would be Nick would go solo. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've followed enough music all my life. I worked in record stores. I'm a mad yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. like reader of rock bios and I'm, you know, I'm a mad studier of album sleeves and who yeah, played yeah. what where and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you just... You just see certain people. It's like you're going, no, it's going to be, you know, Nick's going to go and do the Nick thing. And yeah, I, I yeah, kind of yeah. knew that all along. I would have been quite happy to go along for the ride and I would have been dug to have played on a lot of that stuff. But it was just, I think that's what was happening. I think it was just going, you know, um, Roland was writing very personal stuff. I don't think Nick wanted to sing songs about Roland's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> <laughs> One thing that strikes me particularly um, about your band is a bunch of schoolboys, and it is that kind of schoolboy thing. Let's go, let's go private schoolboys, shall we? <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. Well, both Mark and myself went to kind of similar, like, private boarding school kind of situations, and, in fact, we went to the same school when we were 12 years old. So, so In Ballarat, though. In Ballarat. <laughs> so. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Yeah. <laughs> Probably really good footy players. <laughs> well, no, we were more interested in the stuff that you know that, that doesn't that gets you beaten up in those. <laughs> Sorry, that that was us. Like you know, even at our school, it was this crazy situation where we roamed around um, the the you know our our secondary boys' school as the likely targets for beatings. Notice the the guys who hung out in the art department at lunch yeah, yeah. at lunchtime. You know, you know, albeit you know smoking dope or whatever. You know, it was like that was that was our world was was music and theater and literature and oh I mean, it sounds all kind of wanky but it certainly wasn't that much um you know uh, no one in the first 11 put it that mm. way you know yeah, or yeah. the first 15 or the first 18 were you a gang at school like were the, was the hierarchy established there within the group uh, of t- that went on to become the birthday party we all hung out together i mean that group of people at high school was quite distinct uh, not so much our bass player at that point in time, but certainly Nick, uh, Mick, Tracy, John, the original lead guitarist, myself, uh, another few handful of guys, a guy called David Green, a, a couple of uh, people, um, Craig McGee, Craig, you know, like, 
you know, Craig, some of these guys ended up at our early sort of punky gigs. And so, you know, Craig McGee's younger brother started Shock Records, you know. It's oh, like, it's like, you know, it's like they, yeah, they were people who were really much more interested in counterculture, um, yeah, music, art, you know, I mean, that that was the kind of thing. But it, it was that it was that time. Um, I mean, you guys are probably my age are a bit younger. I don't know. But, you know, it's like it's kind of like um, <laughs> it felt at that time, and it's quite disheartening right now because it felt at that time we were going to get all that shit right. We come out of Vietnam. Um, mm, we were yeah, going. Yeah. You know, there was going to be you know better rights for women. There was going to be free medical. There was going to be free university. There was going to be. We were looking at a you know a, a you know a brighter future for everybody, and it. It, it feels like we kind of missed that boat. You know, I thought that by the time I'm my age now, my gay friends would be married to my gay, whoever they wanted to, that, that, that you know, women would have equal pay and rights and stuff like that, that, that there'd be no racial discrimination, that everyone would have just like kind of worked that shit out. We would have got smart enough to deal with that if that's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like that's kind of what you felt like you were almost we or were getting there in Australia, but if we got out of Australia, it was probably already better else in the world. And of course, you arrive elsewhere in the world, and that maybe isn't the case. But mm. anyway, but back to the movie. Um, <laughs> well, I just wanted to talk to you about that year in London. So it's a very important year in the band's life because what happened between leaving and coming back and starting to work on Prayers on Fire? It's like a completely different band. Did that make you that year? That suffering? That, that what happened? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. I think we we got there and saw it wasn't uh, all that we thought it'd be cracked up to be. I think the limit. I think one of the good kind of good bad things is the limitations around our ability to be able to rehearse and our ability to be able to play live really meant that when whenever we got the opportunity to do any of that kind of stuff it was really, really fucking important to us, right? And, um, uh, you know, it's even, you know, you can hear me voicing over in the movie I talk about, I say, um, you know, I remember um, Nick sitting in the front row, you know, the only instruments available where there was two guitars, you know, in the house, you know, electric guitars, not even, you know, like you couldn't even hardly hear them. But Nick is sitting there, you know, writes the bass line to Nick the Stripper, the bass line to King Inc., uh, the bass line to I'm going to say Yard. You know, he comes up with, you know, the whole thing where, we had such a long uh, established um, relationship of being able to work with one another and being able to even verbalize what we wanted. You know, Nick could say, I want something that swings and I want it to go boom, doom, 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 just this descending thing over and over and over again. And then go, and then he, I'm going to sing this over the top, and that's figure of fun. But that's we, so when you get together in a rehearsal studio, that's the kind of information that you've got to go around. And if a band knows how to do that, they know how to do that. So with limited information, whenever we got to rehearse, we came up with this stuff. It's like no one stopped writing and no one stopped being exposed to creative stuff. Uh, we just stopped playing as much as we did in Australia. As you know, back then, bands played all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. in the year prior to um uh, going to the uk i think we played like 120 shows in australia because we're trying to raise money for plane tickets and stuff yeah, yeah. You, you talk to bands these days especially you know i work with young musicians making records and stuff now and you you, you tell them oh we play you know two shows in the night and we'd play three four shows a week and they look at you like you're from mars <laughs> <laughs> yeah every week you know the whole year they're going you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. I think it was. Um, maybe it was a cathartic experience. Maybe it was a bit of shock to the system, um, and maybe it was a bit of an influence of being in that environment. But I, I, I a lot of people um, laud Junkard uh, as being this kind of like you know great record, which has got some great tracks on it. But I think that Prayers on Fire was like, yeah, okay, we were doing the hee haw stuff and everything like that. But you can, there's this real. Um, switch you know you can you can decide if someone flicked the switch we be, we became a different man and oh by the way the whole like you know uh you know it just magically happened on the plane that the band's name changed from the boys next door the birthday party is total bs uh, <laughs> because it was, it was worked out before we left australia and yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah. 
And even I had a, a, a weird realisation the other night. Um, there was a gig on the 8180 tour, 81-82 summer tour of Australia when we were recording Junkyard. And I think we played, I'm going to say it was the Sydney Trade Union Club, and we played a blinder. It was incredible. And we came off stage and Nick basically turned to the rest of the band and said, well, we've pretty much done this. So now we should do something else. He yeah, said, let's yeah. change the name of the band again. <laughs> and I, and I, but I went, you know, well, I, he's just, it's just, you know, it's just being Bowie, you know, it's just being, you know, it's just like, yeah, let's, let's flip a coin and do the other thing, you know. I don't think he was saying let's play cabaret, but I think he was already thinking at that point in time. Things have got to change. We've got, you know, it's 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 time to, to you know to flip things around. Mark, you saw well. I, I was going to say play I, in I, that tour. I, I just wanted to say, firstly, "Prayers on Fire" is a landmark album, and as a fifteen-year-old, whatever I was when I heard it, it blew me away. And the fact that it came from Australia was was even better. It still stands up. So I would agree with you uh, versus Junkyard as well. Just wanted to get that in there. Um, I did see you in um, January '82 in Brisbane. And I uh, was a young lad, uh, last year of high school. Ooh, um, so, so January of 82? January 82, yeah, the New York Hotel. And you missed the first song, apparently. According to what I read today, you you missed on the first song and Mick played drums for some reason. And then you yeah, came um, No, okay, so what happened at that point in time, uh, and you can see there's actually some footage in the film where this is happening. So, um uh, written a new song. We were in the recording studio and um, uh, the whole idea for the song was there. Nick kind of had the lyrics and was going on. And I I wasn't getting a part. And I, my most hated thing is writing in the studio when the clock is ticking. Mm. And in those days you're talking, you know, back then, you know, $1,000 a day plus engineer plus tape, tape at 200 bucks a roll for two inch, you know, it was like, and that was a lot of money back then, you know, and we were in the best studio in Melbourne and Keith's playing for it and it's all going down. But I I was trying stuff and it wasn't coming together. And so Mick goes, hang on, give me a crack. And I, and we, he goes like, and they go, we get through a tape. I said, that feels good. That feels good. Everybody in the room went, yeah. So I said, do it. Let's put it down. So they put it down. Mick played drums, right? So I didn't know this song. So for the rest of that tour, if we did Hamlet, what what they did was to make it easy for the rest of the set, we'd open with that because then Mick could start on drums and then didn't have to go back and forth from guitar and stuff like that. And so then he'd play that song. I'd come in and play the drums and then, you know, so I wasn't late. I wasn't, you know, out (laughs) That's what I was wondering. (laughs) I know, I know, you know, surely I was out the back with some, you know, uh, you know, whatever. But no, uh, that was not the case. It was just, a, it was in the best interest of the set and the best interest of the song. Yeah. By the time we got back to England at the end of that, I was playing that uh, that song because it wasn't like it wasn't, I was incapable of playing it. It's that we had to come up with the part at the time and we had to put it down in the studio. So, and the studio version is Mick on drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, later live versions is is me. Same with Dead Joe. Um, uh, you know, re- initial recorded version is Mick. There's since another recorded version with me, uh, which is available on other you know recordings. Blah blah blah. Um, and that that's one of the bad things too. The whole of that became very shambolic. The whole junkyard session, you know, and then the whole thing we hadn't finished. We didn't have enough tracks to finish an album. Tracy got arrested. We went back to the UK. We had to finish these, um, you know, whatever songs. Uh, we did these two extra tracks, which I consider both to be not very good, which is um, Kiss Me Black and Koopy Doll. And, uh, yeah, even I think Junkyard only stands up well today as an LP because in the latter versions they put Blast Off and Release the Bats on mm. the track listing, yeah. which was on the original. I have a question that might last less than two minutes, which, <laughs> like question and answer, because you can just say, no, it's nonsense. Um, uh, I, I read something in a 19- night. No, it's nonsense. <laughs> there you go. That's not true. <laughs> I stand corrected. Um, a, uh, a Nikki Danger. Ring any bells? Oh, Nikki Jane, Nikki Danger and the Bleeding Hearts. 
Is that, <laughs> is that it? Yeah. Was that in so, featuring uh, Buddy Love on bass and Phil Thump on drums? Really? So July '77. It's true. Around then, it was a concert. It was. We didn't have a name. Uh, we did have. Look, we. The whole idea they got oh there was was this uh, high school band they were called the boys next door that we had some dreadful names you know we had names that sounded like you know like Alex Harvey band songs yeah, yeah names yeah. that sounded you know I remember we played one school dance and we were called the Magic Puddings or something like that. <laughs> like, you know it's, it's high school you know it's not you know and you know we weren't. You know, supremely cool. You know, we didn't wake up in our nappies, you know, dressed in black in Chelsea boots, you know. (laughs) Nick might have, I don't know. (laughs) In his dreams. In his dreams. Oh, look, in his dreams he'd have had a, you know, a twin that was still born before him, but, you know, come on. It's like a (laughs) – That's right. It's all becomes part of the mythology and I think you've got to to kind of um, give that a little bit of space. Um, And, and look, it was a difficult time and it was a good time and there were tough times and there were great times. And there was the, the thing is that we didn't all get up in the morning going, hey, in 40 years' time someone's going to make a movie and I'm going to be talking <laughs> to them about it in an interview. You got up in the morning and you said, I'm more excited about that song than I was yesterday. I really want to, you know, fucking work out how to record that or I've got a good idea for the middle eight, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's that's more what it was about at, the, at, at any given time, really. Mm. It was about the music. January 82, New York Hotel Brisbane. I was a young, young lad of 16 or 17. I have to say that gig has remained in my mind ever since. It's probably the most terrified I've ever been at a gig in my life. I just did not know what was going to happen next. <laughs> it was just how it happened on the night. You know, it was just very much uh, if the energy was in the room and the energy was going off, then it would infect um, us and then that would reinfect the audience and you'd get this kind of situation where it was, a, a you know, like a, a feedback loop, a self-fulfilling prophecy that everything was going to go fucking nuts. <laughs> and it didn't go nuts every night. Um it went more nuts some nights than other nights. Um, and I think that the <clears throat> one of the bad things that did happen out of it, which I think the the doco kind of uh, gets its head around, is it became that 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 seemed to kind of take over the kind of the attitude of the attending audience was, well, well, let's see what happens tonight because mm. I'm up for it and <laughs> I'm going to, you know, if Nick's going to come out here, then I'm going to go back there. And that that became quite um, adversarial, like like um, like, a, like a bit of biff between us and the band. That was never the intention. The intention is to get the reaction and the interaction, not to start a fight. Um, and, and I think as the, the energy levels um, went up, then, uh, yeah, that, that really exacerbated that stuff. And I think that's one of the things that, that long-term, even after I left, I think that became part of the thing that started to destroy the joy about being on stage. And the birthday party were very much a live band. I think, you know, your difference between seeing it and actually buying the records is a very different thing. And the records are good, don't get me wrong, but the live thing was often where it was most powerful. Mm. Um, and then it became a thing of like, you know, I think Nick's next stage after that with the Bad Seeds almost became a studio band that then took another 10 years to learn how to become a live band. And now he's got, you know, both of it going on. He's like, you know, he's got an amazing live machine now. Uh, but I think he took a step back from because of that stuff, because of that. Um, you know, look at that, that 8081, like, you know, when we um, played in Brisbane and stuff, uh, that's nothing compared to the shit that went down in the 80, 81, 82 tour when it was hot and sweaty and you were heading much more into the junkyard sort of like phase. Those shows got really mad. Well, I have to say it's a show that I still talk about to this day. And I've seen I've seen a lot of shows and it's it's right up there in my top ten for something else. Well it's it's interesting because both um in some of the QA stuff, both um the director of the movie Ian White and Mark Mordu, who was um uh, 
moderating some of those discussions was saying that they both had a similar experience to yourself uh, when uh, attending you know gigs around that stage as they're in the room and uh, that the fear was palpable uh, <laughs> prior to us arriving on stage and then uh, the band playing kind of broke some of that tension, but then there was still this thing in the air that you didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm very excited, you know, to to hear people talk like that and and to and to feel that people were that affected uh, by the music we were playing. I mean, that's a joy to me because I mean, that man, that's pretty much what we set out to do. <laughs> Well, you certainly achieved so it. Let's see what can happen tonight. <laughs> well, Mark was braver than I was. I didn't even dare turn up. We're the same age. We were living in different cities at the time. But, yeah, as a 17-year-old or whatever, you know, there was no way I was going to go and see the birthday party. I'd I'd heard your songs on 3 R and 3PBS and I'd seen that film clip and uh, Nick the Stripper and not least on Countdown. I think there was a, a snippet of it played. And- a snippet, yeah. Yeah, on the humdrum segment. Yes, because, you know, hometown boys make good, you know, and uh, and Molly going, yes, and I always knew they would. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's something that astounded people back in Australia that, that um, uh, and and particularly in our old stomping ground of Melbourne, that people went, oh, Jesus, you know, that, that something's actually going on kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, you know, you know, they, it's really, it's really funny. Okay. So, um, you know, Keith Glasser was out, you know, albeit let's call manager, but, you know, you know, more just like great supporter kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, and a truly magnificent, you know, human being and great bloke, um, you know, basically put his nuts on the line to get us where we were going. And then once we were there and, you know, you might say he then, left us to, you know, fester in our own whatever because we had to work it out for ourselves. But mm. he was, you know, still funding all our recordings and all that kind of stuff. Um, he he basically did an amazing job of PR while we were away so that when by the time we got back, I remember turning up to, you know, the Crystal Ballroom to, I don't know, with Soundcheck or to actually to turn up to the show. And there was queues down the street. I'm always going, well, who's playing tonight? Kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it was, yeah, of course, yeah. it was us. But, but you know, Keith also, to his credit, got us out of our deal with Mushroom, and he, you know, people laughed at him. He said, "Oh, these guys, they're, they're going to be kind of like the Easy Beats." You know, everyone said they're never going to make it if they go to London. And he goes, the birthday party are going to go to London and they're going to fucking go off. And, like, you know, you know, Gadinsky and people like that said, oh, well, you know, over to you, buddy, because I don't know how to do that shit. I'm not, I'm not going to get involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we'll all stand on the sidelines and watch you drown and, you know. They were wrong. It was quite something, I think, for Ian Meldrum to play a segment of your song on the most popular television program in Australia as well. It was quite brave of him, even if he was taking credit for, for it, because there wouldn't have been many eight or nine or ten-year-old kids watching, you know, like suburban kids around Australia watching, you know what, I really like that Nick the Stripper song. <laughs> the, uh, the craziest thing about all of that, which I always found just like so – which actually it's probably – was probably grist to the mill, as they say, was, of course, that Countdown wouldn't play Shivers. So (laughs) while we were still signed to Mushroom and did the second side of the Door Door record and um, Shivers was picked as a single, they would only play it on night moves. Uh, They wouldn't play it during primetime television because of the opening line, I've been contemplating suicide. Of course, second line said, but it really doesn't suit my style. But it really doesn't suit my style. Well, you know, well, at the meantime, you know, the knack of seeing my Sharona about, I'm going to get it up here, my little, you know, like he's got, you know, <laughs> wait till I get my hands on you, my Sharona kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And you go, this guy's going, you know, I'm, you know, a, a, you know, a poor, dark, somber soul who's, you know, madly in love with you and I, you know, I've got this picture in my wallet and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's like it's a real, you know, teen angst kind of song. Could have been a mm. massive anthem, yeah. uh, you know, pretty the fucking screaming jets crucified it years later. <laughs> but, you know, it's like 
that should have been on countdown. And the fact that they even played 15 seconds of Nick the Stripper is only that they kind of wanted to be involved and say, you know, Aussie yeah, guys, yeah. mate. They barely gave the Saints any airtime for the fact that they, you know, were charting, you know, got signed by EMI in the UK, not EMI in Australia. They barely gave any airtime to you know, the the fact that bands like, you know, Birdman could tour in fucking Holland and Germany and pull hundreds of people and sell records and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. It was like it was it was it was a fake construct, you know. But the thing is, yeah, we would have been happy if they had have, you know, played Shivers on Countdown and it had been a hit. That would have been awesome. But you know what? That might have destroyed the thing that came that actually ended up coming next. The fact that we they went no and no and no. So there was no point persevering. Let's just fucking do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Credibility was so crucial in those days and the music magazines, you know, decided who was credible and who wasn't. And having, who was hot and who was not. And having, I mean, re- releasing a single was, was a sellout enough, never mind having a hit. Um, yeah, it would have been interesting to see that other fork in the road had it been like that. There's a bit in the um, uh, Richard... Lowenstein, uh, Roland, Doco. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of guys, Carl and Mick from the ears, basically going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everyone made a single. He said, the boys next door made an album and then they went to England. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. That, was, that was the kind of difference, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to talk about, speaking of singles, probably what might be regarded as your kind of breakthrough single in some ways, Release the Bats, uh, with, that was done with Nick Lornay. When I, I, I really liked it at the time, but when I hear it now, it kind of feels like you're having a bit of a laugh at, at the audience and yourselves. Is Was that track sort of recorded as a bit of a, a, bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing or am I completely yes, missing the point? most definitely, most definitely. I think it was a bit of a kind of poke at the thing that we were starting to be labelled as being goth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it also fed a little bit off the um, rockabilly, psychabilly kind of thing that was going around at the time. Um, you know, kind of stray cats, but like, but kind of other bits around that. Um, but at the same time, it was a genuine... Um, uh, I think it was a, 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 I don't think you can ever forget that the birthday party was fully humour and, and a lot of people miss that. I don't think you can, you know, like we were we were often having a, a rollicking good time ourselves with the songs, with the subject matter, with, our, you know, and, and, you know, we were, <clears throat> you know, kind of, laughing about this stuff while we were doing it as we were doing it and so not a lot of people kind of get that that kind of thing so uh yeah i i i don't think it was a total like you know let's stick the knife in and twist it kind of attitude kind of thing but i think there was certainly elements of that and i don't think it's our um finest piece of work by a long shot the fun aspect of it did occur to me listening to your oeuvre in recent times. And, I mean, a song like Happy Birthday, for instance, is just hilarious, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to have that kind of like um, uh, crazy hijinks kind of, Mm. you know, it's like wacky, uplifting kind of thing about it. I I, I think that, you know, we're cast in such a dark Mm. place uh, place so, so much of the time, and I don't think that uh, uh, any of us in the band really thought of ourselves in in that place at that point. I, mean, I think that the the journalists, particularly the UK um, rock press, uh, did a lot to you know put us in that box or want to put us in that box. And I think that um, you know I think one of uh, you know Nick's great um what can i say you know difficulties at that whole time was constantly being misquoted in the press or being you know um uh put into a, a, a box or having things he said made up to make stuff that he hadn't said and i think that's where he he um uh, uh developed his uh, disdain uh, for the uh, uh the journalistic uh, 
uh, crew. There is a certain Australian sense of irony and dry sense of humour, which on the page... Can I ask, when did it stop becoming fun for you? I, I kind of feel like the, the excessive drug and alcohol use of the other members of the band started towards the end, because you seem to be the organiser and the fixer, you know, of I, I, I disagree with that. I mean, look, you know, I mean, like, the other thing the movie does is cast this kind of sort of like, you know, great divide between they, those who did and those who didn't, which, like, yeah, was a thing. But, you know, let's not say that, you know, the, the, the concept that Mick Harvey or I were not taking drugs is ridiculous. Um, and uh, it just becomes your choice of drugs. And if you've been around drugs, you'll know how that kind of goes. Um, it's... Um, you know, it never stopped being fun for me up until the minute I got the sad missive that I was no longer in the band. So I was in it, you know, up to my guts until the minute I wasn't. Um, and I think that the process about the band's disintegration uh, is kind of like, like I think, um, calmly and well put. I think it was a thing that, you had to break the thing that was there to make the next thing. And I think that was like you had to try the bit without me um, to get to the bit with just the four-piece and then you had to arrive at the bit where the, um, the, the, the chemistry wasn't working between Nick and Roland uh, and then you had to arrive at the point where, you know, Nick was basically going, I'm not going to work on that, you know. I don't want to be part of that. I think the, I, I've got to say the thing where they got rid of me and, and then they got to the next stage and they did that first EP, The Bad Seed, I reckon that's a really good record. I reckon that that, that, that really holds great. I think by the time they got to the Mutiny EP, you can almost feel the wheels falling off the billy cart, you know, to me. But um, but I kind of was looking at it from someone who'd already been inside of it, you know, and probably a whole lot of people hoped it was going to keep going forever. What Beatles song did you propose covering? Was that anything to do with the... Uh... I helped a skeleton. Well, that wouldn't have been a bad one, but I thought that might have hastened the departure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's a that's a kind of that's a kind of Rolandism, you know. It's like you know, um, yeah, you know, it's okay. You know, it's okay to suggest a Nina Simone song. It's okay to suggest an Elvis song. You know, and then, you know, Nick has since you know fucking done Beatles songs live. I mean, it's like, it's like, where do you come from? You come from a love of music, and you come from a point where you want to do stuff that's interesting and see, you know, how other people can work with that. So I, I don't, yeah. I mean, hey, look, you know, more, more fool me for not being cool enough. <laughs> well, no. I don't, no. I don't personally view it that way, you know. It's like uh, which Stone song would you have chosen, you know. I mean, oh, yeah, oh, we'll do Sympathy for the Devil, you know. Mm. Oh, well, yeah, if you want you want the good oil. I mean, yeah, we rehearsed doing Five to One by the Doors, but we never did it live. Helter Skelter is very much at the cool end of the Beatles spectrum. Like, it's a pretty raw and yeah. rough song. Yeah. And shit, imagine we would have done it before you too, but <laughs> yeah, well, that was Long time yeah, before. yeah. I didn't want to mention you two. I thought that wouldn't be helpful. And you did, of course, if you were at the um, Q and A at the theatre at Cremorne, you would have heard Ian White say that my um, my uh, codicil, my 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 clause was that I would not be involved if in the film. Uh, were either Bono or Henry Rollins in it. So I, I think I <laughs> yes. succeeded with that one. <laughs> you did. I, I do want to say for what it's worth, once you left, the rhythm section wasn't the same for me. I just felt like something was lacking and I started to lose interest in the band. And that's not to blow smoke up your ass. It just wasn't the same band. So for what it's worth, I just wanted to throw that in there. People say that. I, I've got no... Um, you know, I'm really happy with the stuff I did. I'm really stuff... I, you know, I really... You know, my whole period where I was you know, in that band, it was like for me, you know, the most important thing that happened to me every day when I got up and, you know, ate my cornflakes or made my coffee or whatever. It was like, you know, that 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 was, you know, what I lived and breathed for that whole time. So, you know, it, it's it's important to me. It's cool to me. But, you know, I've done, 
uh, a bunch of stuff since and I hope to do a bunch of stuff more, but it's, you know, it's not like a debilitating situation that, you know, when that ended, my life ended. So it's like, uh, I really, um, I'm enjoying the fact that a lot of people that might be getting onto the music and I'm enjoying the fact that people are uh, enjoying the film and hopefully, you know, getting something of the feel of what the energy was like around that band. And I think that's the thing that's, it's like lightning in a bottle, but that's the thing. Ian's done quite a good job of getting a sense of the time you know, I've got a friend who uh, went with his kids to see it and they've heard this music in their household all their life because their dad's like our generation and stuff like that. And they and and the daughter says, geez, dad, you know, I knew it was, I never realised it was that, like that live. <laughs> My God, what was going on? You know, yes. it's like you go, the, you, it's like, See, if you were there, you've got some kind of a sense of what went on in the room. And you know, people see that that section in the video where Nick's on his back in front of the drum kit <laughs> doing cry. And I think he's got blood on his lips and he's, you know, it's like you go, he's, you know, and then he leaps up and fucking goes again. You know, it's amazing, you know, he didn't get fucking end up in hospital. You know, he mm-hmm. never did, but, you know, it was, um, it was it was pretty wild life, man. It was pretty wild. The utter fearlessness of Nick, which I don't want to get too much into kind of amateur psychology, but perhaps the death of his father, who was you know, such a big figure for him that maybe he'd sort of... We can, you know, we can, uh, we can dance that one around the room all night. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, you know maybe... Um, Nick was fearless before his father died. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no fair enough. I, I can, I can tell you for certain. Uh, he did stuff I would never risk. <laughs> he, he, he was. Yeah, he certainly wasn't afraid of uh, disappointing his father. You know, like during. during... Well, no, he, he also he was very fearless of physical injury. Mm. I saw him. I saw him in schoolboy fights in the middle of the oval, and I saw him do. You know, that whole thing of him climbing out of moving cars and trains yeah, is yeah, all yeah, yeah. 100% completely true. And his father was alive at that point in time. <laughs> so I don't think that you can draw a, a correlate. I think he was, um, you know, I think he'd grown up in a country. I think he had, you know, I know a lot to prove and nothing to lose. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, but yeah. he's a great guy. And like, you know, as kids, we had a lot of good fun together. He and I shared a lot of great camaraderie, even some stuff around the time of his father's death, which is a bit personal to me. And uh, he's probably forgotten, but it doesn't matter. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember with all of those guys, I, you know, and, you know particularly Tracy, because um, he and I, you know, we moved out of home together. We got our first flat together, and you know, we chase similar girlfriends together and stuff and times, you know, when we were 18 and, and junk like that. And, and you know, I've got – it's really nice that there's some kind of um, uh, uh, presence uh, of him within the film and and uh, it makes me have very uh, fond, uh, you know, recollections of all the uh, great times and, and, and such a funny guy. Oh, my God. Fuck. You would just laugh yourself to death if you met that man. He was – it was phenomenal, but anyway, yeah, no. they, 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 you get a little bit of that in the movie, and I think that's really good. He's um, I did a Q and A uh, for WA um, uh, um, late last week and stuff, and uh, his sister was in the audience, and that was really lovely. Do you find it amazing that you are still talking about this uh, these years in your life for something nearly forty years ago? The people are so interested and, and want to know. Does that just blow you away? I think it's wonderful, uh, and uh, uh, am I? Yeah, I'm surprised and amazed. I'm happy about it. Um, I, you know, I'm not like going, "Oh, I wish I was back there" because it was the best moment of my entire life. I'm very, you know, happy with how things turned out for me and mine and that's all great but i think it's um it's a you know it's a lovely um you know what i i think it's kind of cool on a lot of levels but the thing i hope the most is that if people do 
see it and they've got no sense of the music that they go looking for the music because that's the thing, you know, you and I all grew up thumbing through, you know, albums in record stores going, what's this cover? I don't, you know, play me this, you know, all this. This is on the same label as this guy that I already like. I don't even know who this is. Play me this, you know. So, uh, you know, that's how I ended up, you know, knowing about, you know, the modern lovers and that's how I ended up knowing about Miggy and the Stooges and that's how I ended up knowing about the Velvet Underground and things like that. So if people go backwards to the Wayback Machine and find our music and then that's a conduit to other music or that's a thing that makes them think about their own music and how they play or what they do mm. or how they approach what they do in their music, then that will that would be more exciting for me than someone making a movie uh, about a band I used to be in. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's cool that it's happening. I like it uh, on that level. But if uh, if people get into the music, uh, that's uh, much more exciting for me because, you know, it's like when you find a you know crazy old Art Blakey record from 1954 or five that you never heard before and there's this great version of, you know, fucking nine inch Tunisia or something. They go, Wow, Jesus, listen to that. You know, <laughs> yeah. That's that's like, you know, that's digging around in record stores. One last question from me. I didn't dare see you at the start of 82 in the birthday party, but I did dare see you in the psychedelic furs at the end of 82 at the Pier Hotel in Frankston, which is not a not a place I ever expected to see the psychedelic furs play out of suburban Melbourne gig. Was there any particular highlights from your time in psychedelic furs? And do you remember anything much about that tour? Oh, yeah. I mean, that tour, um, it was one of these things where um, – and it happened around that time that English bands worked out that you could be a middleweight kind of act and you could come to Australia and you could hit the pub circuit here right through summer, nothing happening in England, mm. freezing cold. You know, you can come out here, it's warm, there's beer, you get a 1000 bucks a night, you get, you know, like, you know, whatever, the packed houses, you're like, you can stay in motels, you drive around, there's, you know, it's... And a load of bands did it, you know, The Cure did it, uh, Susie and the Banshees did it, like, and 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 either side, earlier magazine had done, like, and people, it became, the Stranglers came out and played huge shows here. People loved them, you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, the um, um, Love My Way had gone number one in New Zealand, and so there was a big music festival there outside of Auckland, an outdoor thing called Sweetwater, and we went and did that. And because we were down there, they said, oh, you can come over and do you know, four or five shows. So we did um, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. Did we do Adelaide? Yeah. And then we were here, and so the – you know, one of the touring, um, like, you know, booking agencies said, oh, I can book you another 20 shows. We had nothing to go back to the States because it was, was cold and freezing in New York and snowing and we were halfway through a tour in America. And so they, they they put on another 20 shows here and we did them and the band loved it. Uh, look, you know, I really like that band. Um, it's a long story about, well, it's a long short story about how I ended up in that band, but uh, it was a similar situation where my demise in that band was fueled by the thing that I wanted to go, hey, let's push it and be much more uh, adventurous, much more like their first couple of records. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they wanted to go much more down the straight. Uh, they were really trying to angle for a pop career yeah, here yeah. Uh, in the United States and they'd appointed a record producer to do just that. It was the guy who just done uh, uh, Don't You Forget About yeah, Me for yeah. Simple Minds. Yeah, Keith and Fawcett. A massive hit. And so they were just going. And so basically on his say-so, he said, look, we'll just do a program all drum machines and everything yeah. like that. You can just lose that cat and we'll pick up another touring drummer. Mm. And so I was out. That was it. But um, the whole of that tour was phenomenal. And sadly, uh, let's not bring the show down too much, but today – I uh, received an email from the lead singer of the Psychedelic Furs, Richard Butler, to tell us that the saxophone player who has been playing with them since that tour in 1983 
uh, passed away today. So oh, Lars really? Williams is uh, wow. no longer with us. And and the funniest fucking guy you will ever meet and awesome uh, tennis saxophone player and ladies wow. man. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's really, that was really bummed me out today. But uh, anyway, go oh, Mars. Yeah. I hope you're flying to the stratosphere of saxophonia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're um, we've come to the end, Phil. Um, I just want to say it was a real honour to speak yeah. to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad, I'm glad we got there. Fun, okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really glad that we got there in the end, and I'm sure you're, you're a busy man. But it's um, as I said, for that 17 year old kid that saw you play that gig that night, it's um, a personal highlight in my uh, uh, life to speak to you. So thank uh, you. With, I, I, I got to say, those two summers where we came back to Australia and played those shows. They were always a highlight for us because we got to reconnect with everyone. It was always such a freaking, you know, rollicking good time um, mm. to be able to, you know, get up and play in Australia because the audiences here are by far, you know, the best in the fucking world. And, and I'll tell you a funny story about your fear of uh, the gig and also your fear of the gig <laughs> is that um, uh, I was talking to Bernard Zool, who's a, you know, he was basically saying the same thing. He said, you know, I was this, you know, young kid. And he said, like, you know, I was so intrigued and stuff, but I, I was too scared. He said, I was too scared to go see you and I was too scared to go see Midnight Oil. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't compare those two. Wow, wow. Well, yeah, you know, you know, I was, you know, I was more scared of Midnight Oil's road crew than I was of the band, but that's another story. Uh, but, you know, it's like um, – yeah, I go, wow, that's that's crazy. Um, I, I never <laughs> – yeah, and then you hear other people say, oh, yeah, I was there. It was weird and it was fearful. But once the band started, it was like oh, insane. You were still scared, but at least it was music. Yeah, yeah <laughs> this yeah, sure yeah. was. No, it was it was an amazing gig. Everything about it is stuck in my mind, and I'll never forget it. So uh, thank you for that. Right, well, and for go, the records, go to keep buying the records, and uh, you know all that stuff. We'll yeah. do. We'll do. I, I really, you know, I enjoy this interview process. It's really kind of you know easy and fun. And and I'm sorry the camera bombed out on the, the second half um, half of the thing, but uh, it's uh, really nice chatting with you guys. And yeah, uh, yeah, I fantastic to talk to you. Yeah, genuine uh, appreciation of. Uh, yeah, the shit we did back then. So thanks. No, thank yeah, you very no, much. Thanks and, so much, um, Phil. Yeah, uh, keep, keep up the good work. We'll keep an eye out for what you're doing uh, down the track as well. The sculpting. Oh, oh yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> don't forget my sculptures. Yes, yeah, yeah, you want to show us a sculpture? <laughs> See you later. Bye bye. Thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks Phil. Phil. Thank you.